This is Brass Tactics, policy and strategy for the people, not the politics. Welcome to Brass Tactics, where we talk policy without the partisanship. I don't know what else to say here. Still working on that intro. Getting down to brass tactics. Let's get down to brass tactics. I'm Joe McGiffin, and with me is our co-host, Pete Mitchell. Pete, how are you doing today? Thanks so much for having me, Joe. It's great to be here. How are you? Well, you know, it's it's your house, so... Well, it's happy yeah. to host you. Yeah. In any case, now I forgot what we were doing here. Okay, well... Am I technically the co-host if it's my house? Doesn't this make me the host host? Well, you know what? If you ever chipped in to help with any of the editing, you could call it whatever you wanted to. Really don't want to do that, though. And that is why with my co-host, Pete Mitchell, we were here to talk about big questions. About war, peace, everything in between? Yes. Everything you need to know to sound smart at a cocktail party or BS your way into a political appointee position. That's a little facetious. But anyway, so before we ask the question of the question of the show... Just because this is the first episode, and um, hi, mom, because that's pretty much the actually I can't even guarantee that she's gonna bother. My to mom did absolutely not. Anyway, so in our own words, why are we doing this? We identified that there was a gap, maybe in the uh... where most people talking about this sort of stuff start with deeply profound sort of sounding things like, oh well, we identified a gap in the. In the zeitgeist. They did, but there's very few actual podcasts out there talking about strategy from a nonpartisan perspective. Or just in plain freaking English. That's also, that's also correct. But that's your job to make sure you keep me dialed back in and not getting too pedantic. Yeah. I mean I mean we got we got my own personal diatribes and beefs that we'll bring up. Well we promise to identify these things as such. Out of a courtesy to you, the listener. AKA mom or not. <laughs> well, yeah, so long story short, we both study and, and teach this stuff, foreign policy, politics, international relations, and that sort of thing. And kind of we have our own sources for stuff we like to learn, where we like to learn things, where we get facts and stuff from. And it just kind of occurred to us that, you know, it's a really small community that seems to talk about these things, which would suggest that there's a really small community that cares about these things, but that's not true. Foreign policy is one of those areas where a lot of experts prefer that these things be left to the experts, when in reality, especially with the internet, global connectivity, and all that stuff, anything this country decides to do in its foreign policy is going to affect every single one of us. And so everyone has a right to know, a right to be informed, and, and a right to shape policy or advocate for their own options yep. the way they see fit. And not just in the United States either, right? Just because we're speaking in English doesn't mean that we'll be strictly always coming from a American perspective. Or And certainly the things we'll be talking about will not just be affecting, you know, people who live in the northwestern part of the northern hemisphere. Yeah, and I think that's part of what sort of frustrated us enough to attempt to do this, right? Everything is always approached from a perspective. There isn't necessarily a right answer out there for any foreign policy, but there's there are set thinking ways of doing these different things that don't necessarily 
have like an objective basis because you know it's like flip a coin you could take the left turn you could take a right turn well <clears throat> three left equal one right so there's different ways of getting to the same spot but a lot of people don't consider it as a as an issue of that perspective right why america does certain things kind of has to do with how America's always done things, or how Americas see things, or how different Americans even see things. And that is an unintentional diatribe that led exactly into our question. So, Pete, the question I wanted to start today is just to just cause to give a good frame of reference for, for where where we want to explore later in this podcast when we have guests on and whatnot. What is up with this seeming intrinsic American urge? to see a conflict, to see international conflict, contest, to see two people going at it somewhere and just getting involved. What is the American urge for intervention? Much like your Corgi's urge for inserting herself where she was not asked. This is a grassroots everyman podcast. It is. Yep. Okay. Okay. Why do Americans like conflict? It's. I didn't say we liked it. Are interested in. I don't think it's necessarily a good thing. No. We just have a compulsion to intervene. See a fight, pick a side, back them up. So I think, so again, Americans, we've, our interest in, in, in conflict outside of our own borders, I think it comes in waves. There are times when we are, or have been motivated by a very assertive foreign policy. And then there's times we kind of relapse into an isolationist, not my problem type of attitude. Okay. Currently, if you had to pick an answer to the question that didn't start and or end with, well, it depends. How would you answer this question? I would say, yeah, okay. I would say Americans have a almost a gladiatorial interest in, um, in conflict, which takes it beyond just detached observers. Americans so we're we're in it for the money? No, I think they're actually I think Americans do it for the thrill. They like it because they can see and then they they can see a fight and then they project on it good and bad or good and evil according to their own particular lens and then we can support good against evil in whatever crusade may be going on at the time. I, I could see the I could see the immediately good versus evil thing. I don't I don't I don't think it's fair to say that we're in it for the throw of it. Mm. Um but I would definitely say it's a good versus evil thing. But I would also at the risk of sounding like like grandpa, I would blame it on the commies. Well not just the commies, what about the Nazis? If we're talking about like us getting involved in the world. I mean they were they were like the practice rat, but I, I would blame the commies and the USSR specifically, I, I think it's a legacy of the Cold War to 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 put it in plain words, and and we're gonna walk this all the way back, and I mean like all the way back, folks. Like we're starting with the cocktail conversation. You're gonna learn about a couple of philosophers, some famous strategic theorists. You are going to be so impressive at the next mixer where people start talking politics, and you can be that guy who's like, well, I'm somewhat apolitical, but in my honest opinion. Blah, blah, cloth sweats, mom. Sorry, you were looking at me like you had something to add. No, I need to get invited to those kinds of parties. Whatever right? You know, I've never seemed to ever end up on those invite lists. So we're Probably because we talk too much. Where does it... Oh, I've heard that's well. We get invited once. 
Why can't we get, get party? Back. We don't get invited to the party. We don't get invited. So now we just take the party online. Right. All right. So then pulling it back from the Cold War position that America, so pre-1945, America has no land borders with any enemy, right? Canada, Mexico, we skirmish with them in the 1900s. We take a lot of Mexico's territory, and now we're on... No, no, they sold us. Guadalupe Hidalgo was not a... Well, okay, fine. Yeah, we, we gave them some money, but it was definitely a hostile takeover. Either way, so we are a a very large continental power with a great deal of territory and two friendly land neighbors. After 1945, however, the United States ends up in West Germany and in South Korea with a land border with a hostile foreign power to the Soviet Union and its allies, as you said earlier, which has necessitated not only the need for a large standing army for the first time in American history, but also this uh, keen sense of interest in what's going on around the world. Because what is going on around the world in this new global age, the jet age, soon to be followed by the information age, everything is affecting everybody else. This globalization of conflict, right? There's no more isolated bush wars. Everything is all together. Where did that start, though? Where does where do we even get to that point, Joe, where then war previously being an isolated thing, right, between two parties, and if it doesn't, you know, if it's not, if they're not raiding or burning down your city, it's not really bothering you. In fact, it might even be good for you. Yeah, so this is, because th- there's, there's two, there's two answers to this question, right, of where did this urge come from, and it has to do with the nature of conflict, or just to simplify things, because Usually when you hear somebody talk about conflict, it's because they're avoiding using the term war because war has to be declared and it's all formal and then it gets boring, blah, blah, blah. So what is the nature of war? And then how do Americans perceive war, perceive conflict? To this threat of communism, expanding around the world, challenging what is American, I think that results in this American need to intervene because of that containment policy, because of the fundamental understanding that Americans have, especially American policymakers, have at this time of, like, what is war? So, but so don't forget the, the, the unique threat of communism, as well as Nazism, as an existential threat to the American way of life. Yeah, that is part of it there, right? Because it's, it is, it, I think it ties into how Americans view war. Mm-hmm. So, first let's talk about the war part, because war's been... War's been a part of the human condition yeah. ever since we started throwing rocks at each other. We might be very practiced at warfare, but it was there long before us Americans. Mm-hmm. So, in that regard, what is war? Well, I think it's interesting that some of the earliest human skeletons that they found have borne marks that have been uh, obviously borne by violence from other human beings. So and they fell out of a tree. It's yeah, onto an axe. Yeah, so or perhaps a club. It's a very oddly shaped ring. Yeah, that is, yeah. Which inspired the axe. The uh but because of I mean that and other things too, psychologically and anthropologically, a war as an act of organized violence is an intrinsic part of the human condition. Um well, that sounds like fighting words themselves. Well, I mean it's I mean, but it's I mean, you can't debate it when you it's a cool record. It's it's more the fact. Oh, I couldn't debate anything. Of course, but uh, in this context, it's it's involved. We have like, involved in this context. Yeah, I do agree with what there's whether 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 war is a good thing or a bad thing, which I think most of us would agree, war is bad. Mm-hmm. 
I also feel like you can't necessarily say war is necessary either. Mm -hmm. But to your point, it is, it is, it is, it is ubiquitous. It is ubiquitous. It's always where there's been people that see other people as not being the same people. There has been war or have things that they would like. And it's one of the, it's one of the earliest things that folks wrote about that folks philosophize, philosophize the people done thunk hard. Well, I don't, I don't really know that. Well, when you think about it, so like when you, when we're talking about the real classics, all right, so you have, you have Sun Tzu in the East in the Art of War, and you have Thucydides, this Peloponnesian War, and also Herodotus' histories. They talk about war not so much in a, in like a philosophical sense, as in like what is this, what is the nature of this being? They just state war is. Right. Oh, I mean, yeah, that's that's fair. Because I was also like biblical terms. You you start with murder because there's not that many people around. Mm-hmm. So when you have multiple murders happening at the same time, that's generally some sort of conflict or sport. I think that's an important point because philosophy implies that somebody began thinking of it in in, in an abstract in abstract and that's that's not what I assume we're both dancing around Sun Tzu, right? Now. Yeah, yeah, with the classics. So I think Thucydides and Sun Tzu deserve to be mentioned in the same breath because they both discuss war in a way that's like this is this is an act of violence and this is how it is done. Thucydides is doing it kind of in a retrospective. Sun Tzu is unique, as you obviously, you know, you can tell them a little more, but he's laying out a handbook. Like he's telling you this is a very Dangerous. Yeah, in fact, the most dangerous to, activity. How to be an artist of war. Yes. Art of war. Yes. Is this it is more just like this is how this war went down and this is what people are thinking, which, yeah, also profound insight. But yeah, so sticking with the Sun Tzu thing, and I read this quote down somewhere because I figured we, we should offer something in the terms of education in order to bring somebody besides my mother to the table. The art of war is of vital importance to the state. It is a matter of life and death, a road either to safety or to ruin. Hence, it is a subject of inquiry, which can on no account be neglected. That's not even a definition of war. It's not. He's just like, hey, don't do war. Don't learn about war. And you are going to be put out of a state of existence. You will perish. And because the master's son, that's Sue being his title, right? So master's son, is he's living in the a, pretentious. He's it's airy, he's living in an in a time period, right? The spring and autumn period, right? Of China where it's like he Yeah, that's what they guess, right? He, Late he, spring and autumn. Yes. So it's it's a time period where there are multiple it's 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 a time in Chinese history where there's no set particular power broker. We'll find a link to one of those like Flash HTML map. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. See what Pete's. But what you what you what you will see in the spring autumn period though is not a unitary emperor. You know, like for example during the Han Dynasty. Light. Exactly. It's 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 a it's a kaleidoscope of different warlords and and this those warlords who were good at the art of war because it's very significant in China. China's unique actually, where like the regional leaders are always called warlords because they are very literally lords of war. The ones who are bad at fighting are assumed by their rivals. And of course, Sun Tzu would be on the front lines of this because he's writing this to other men like him, professional strategists, men who would be advising warlords. Just because you say professional strategists, Mm -hmm. and we have actual people who are paid to come up with strategies now. What was a professional strategist back then? It was much more than nowadays where essentially, well, you and I, we're arguably professional strategists. We're, we're, we're kind of just policy wonks, right? But but a man like Sun Tzu is a combination. He's a, he's a 
commander. He's a bureaucrat. He he's an auditor. You would bring him in as a as a consultant. He would do everything under the sun. As yeah, long as he, he became me- he became freelance, but yeah, like he he cut his teeth as a general. Yes, and a yes, general yes. to them was like the right hand of the prince. Mm-hmm. The prince was too busy to both punish people for not paying taxes and also wage his own wars. And so he contracts it out to a general. Mm-hmm. And a general is seen as the direct representative of a prince. Mm-hmm. And he's like, if if your general stinks, then you're just going to, you're going to have to be your own general. There is not this multiple separations of statecraft and warfare. Mm-hmm. It's an intrinsic part of the prince's job it is is not avoiding war or defending from war it is just winning war correct and uh well yes and and not necessarily through open conflict as sun tzu again famously says right like the true the true epitome of excellence is is not to win every battle but to win without fighting yeah the other reason i was hesitant to call i was like little conflict or war blah blah sun tzu does not care what you call war because he's planning to stab you in the back before you're even able to muster an army against you. Well, yeah, the the best of all situations would be to put you in a situation via political machination where resistance is futile and you just kind of, you accept the uh, the new authority because it's the most harmonious option. His last chapter is literally dedicated to how to classify your spies, the level of reliance you can have upon them, and which forms of sabotage are more likely to be effective relative to your strategic objective. It's a great read, and it's only about, what, 120 pages, The Art of War? So, uh, like I said, we recommend it to everybody listening to pick up a... I mean, it's it, the copyright's free, too. You can read it on the internet. And like you said, Greeks Greeks and Romans didn't really see it all that different. It was only viewed as, as a holistic part of human nature, right? It was, it was natural as breathing warfare. For those of you cocktail convo tip sort of Pete, find me a find me a little noise to make there. Yours. Yeah, a whoops, sure, ding or something. Maybe a broken glass, depending on the tip. One of them old neon lamps, neon signs firing up like a beer sold here. That's a good idea. Actually. I like, like that. Ding, ding, yeah, um, but that. anyway, we talked about that so long, I forgot what the cock. Oh, the Thucydides trap. Yes, Graham Allison's Thucydides trap, which is something you will hear. In a later race. That experts, yeah, we'll talk about it again, but you'll, it's something that's very popular right now, especially because people like to say the U.S. and China are inevitably going to fight each other because of this Thucydides trip. Is that still is that still a hot take, or has that kind of been I, I wouldn't even call it a hot take. I would say it's almost it's normalized. It's normalized. This I feel like it's almost an intrinsic given. But the Thucydides trap says when, when you have two powers growing, there's only so much... There's a finite amount that they will tolerate each other before one has to eat the other. But notably, Thucydides himself says nothing of that. that no, that's as, as grand as, translating. As, that is, uh, that is, because Thucydides would think it would be horrifying to try to use history to predict the present in such a. Uh... I refuse to be qualified on that one. Uh, that way, I can always find avoid saying something assertive of anybody. I can never be. The, the cocktail term is teleological, right? You're saying yeah. that the pad. Cocktail term with Thucydides. <laughs> <not. laughs> Don't give them more cocktail terms than they can remember from one party. If you, uh, that's a cocktail tip right there. Yeah. In, in Q noise, if you bring up too many cocktail tips too quickly, that's how Pete doesn't get invited back to that's the party. That's why I haven't been invited. Mm-hmm. But yes, yeah, moving past them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why don't we talk a little bit about the dark? 
I hate that term. You know, I hate that term. You said that on purpose. The less, the, the less bright ages. The early middle ages. The crude barbaric era that comes before the light. The story really does. Right, by the Renaissance. Mm-hmm. To your point, the, the conduct and the practice of war remains, you have a professionalization of warfare that is, that is undertaken by the Roman Empire, both West and East. As those collapse, you have a deprofessionalization of warfare, as in they begin to rely less on disciplined infantry and again more on mounted. Hold up, you're using nobility. the worst things again. Okay. I've got, I've got Dory syndrome really bad. Yes. So, Dark Ages. Before the Dark Ages, there was a Roman Empire. Yes. Then there wasn't a Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was really good yeah. and expanding itself, collecting taxes, through war. allegedly governing things. Through war, by the way. So yeah, the Roman Empire it was built very on war. gifted at cut. Yes. And then it's not there anymore. In the West. So remember, so and what we're talking about is in the West. So so in the East it endures until 1450. So like Europe, Europe. Yes. The West Roman Empire collapses in the late 400s. When that happens, there that's the beginning of the so-called early Middle Ages, at the end of the of the of the late ancient period, or the late classical period. The medievals, they are the first people who begin looking at war from a what we would consider a philosophical element, because the medievals in the West are Christians, Latin Christians, and so you have expansive texts written on the conduct of war by, for example, Augustine of Hippo, who's a uh, who's a it's not Africa. It's not moral. We just feel bad about it. It's no, it's not though, because Augustine, for example, he coins our entire Western concept of so-called just war theory, which okay. is still studying. Right. Correct. Unprovoked war is bad. Self-defense war is always justified, for example. It's again it and it's it's what's happening because you have a civilization that is coming out of the pagan Roman Empire. It is rapidly Christianized. And the tenets of its chief teacher, Jesus of Nazareth, is thou shalt not kill or thou shalt not murder, depending on your translation. They're looking at war for the first time from a, from a basically, how do we fight this in a way, not so much how do we win, right? That would be the Thucydides or Vegetius, a Roman author, Sun Tzu's way of looking at it. How do we fight and always win? But the medievals are instead looking at it is how do we fight while also preserving our immortal souls? which is a very unique way of looking at it. So we're still, we haven't reached anybody who at any point has said, don't war. Absolutely. So we start with war as hard as you can, as dirty as you can. And then we say war and self-defense. And then there's also with this war and self-defense, there's this, there's this, there's this overtone of, okay, when in war, control yourself. Yeah laws of war so now and again don't get it twisted there were there's laws of war for the romans and the greeks as well one of the most traditional is if a city is under siege and they surrender before the first siege weapon fires the city won't be sacked however the second the siege begins everything in that city is for the besieging army so you've got these brainiacs who are writing some stuff about how to do these moral and just wars Mm -hmm. but then on at like the base level, but the base the, level, how to fight? The folks are who are actually having to fight. Yes, it's almost like these gentlemen's agreements. Like people, people are almost like-minded already, and it's it's not the golden rule because you're still doing war. But at the same time, it's like, well, hey, if you wanted to surrender, like I wouldn't want somebody to sack my city if I if I surrendered before it cost them yep. anything either. To win without fighting, again, going 
going back to Sun Tzu, it comes back to this, like, well, even Sun Tzu said, hey, it's preferable if you can if you can find a constrained way of achieving victory. That would that would be ideal. And then again, but, but he doesn't care. But it's, it's just it's just but it's it's interesting though for the medievals. Now you have some like fight books, like they're literally called fight books in German, like where you have like how to like use a lance, how to use a crossbow, how to build a trebuchet. Those are more like how to guides. But for the actual campaigns, they're still using the GTS's De Re Militari, they're still using Thucydides' Peloponnesian War. They're reading the ancient writers because there's no one who's writing anything up through the Middle Ages of any note that is on a how to organize campaigns and logistics. All right, so we're so now now we now we're trying to avoid doing things in war that would kind of make us feel awful, um, but we're still largely fighting war the same way they fought war. Correct. What else is going to happen in the Dark Ages? Excuse me, the medieval period mm-hmm. that starts really transitioning. This war is just there, and you win or you die. The Cersei and Lannister. You Cersei and oh, is it a Game of Thrones reference? Game of Thrones reference. All right, so yeah, we are, we are. Hip. You said dating. You're dating yourself, my friend. Kids, like, oh, is the kid? Do we not talk about that anymore? It's like ten years ago, wasn't it? Anyway, so regardless. Um, do you see that thing where Bowling for Soups, 1985? I did see that. Today. 2005. I did see that. It, it made me feel good. I did, it didn't feel good at all. But regardless, so like I said, you have the gentleman's rules. Don't fight on Sunday, if possible. Don't harm church property. The church, the Catholic church had a big part in making that rule, by the way. Don't molest women. Don't bother children, right? Like there were the kind of uh, ground rules for combat in the Middle Ages because it was also seen as primarily... A personal duel. A lot of wars in the Middle Ages, in Western Europe especially, are started because of personal grievance. Famously, uh, King Henry IV invades of England, invades France due to, you know, inheritance controversy. He believes he should inherit France. Against what is the dolphin? Yes, against the dolphin. The, so, the dolphin. So it's right. not just it's not just Joe Schmo having having beef with Billy Bob next door. We're, yes. You tell you, like these people are our nobles are people who own land and essentially own people. Yeah. Not so many words because they're serfs, but they're like, well, no, those are the, the feudal, it's a, yeah, yeah. the feudal system. Yes. So you, which is a zero. The person you pay taxes more than just your taxes. Yep. You owe them some time, specifically some time conducting violence against your neighbor in order to get more resources. If you're a professional warrior, right? Because the knights and their and their retinues are expected to fight. The peasants are not really expected to fight. The peasant's job is to is to work, pray, and be diligent. And so until the Hundred Years' War, which is notable because of its very nasty um, targeting of civilians. So before this Hundred Years' War, before we get it backwards, I guess, yes. I was just the, so the knights, like, it becomes so specialized, now you basically have to hire Professionals, yes, who are who are good at fighting, going to navigate navigate these rules on your behalf, right? Because a fully armored, uh, mounted knight is the king of the high medieval battlefield. It's until, as you're sorry, as you're trying to get at the revolutions, the revolutions of the infantry revolutions of both gunpowder and the pike. I wasn't trying to get there. I was just trying to get us out of the dark medieval. Well, that's what gets you out of the Middle Ages. The, the, it's a combination of the Renaissance, which is you know, the translation of Greek and Roman and Arabic classics into um, the vernacular, uh, tied in with the imagery revolution of gunpowder. Well, I mean, you also missed the cue board behind me that says, talk about the development of the idea of the barbarian state. But... Oh, 
boy. Anyways, though. But, but the way you defeat the knight... No, wait, here's about how you defeat the knight, Pete. We're trying to define war. And one of the fundamental things that is changing to define war, right? Yes. Is the, is the Treaty of Westphalia. But that's in 1648. I'm still back in 1470. I know, but we've been recording for 36 minutes. We can jump ahead a little. Look, a 48 tops minute podcast. So what you're going to get, though, you got gunpowder, you've got pikes. Now you have disciplined professional-styled first mercenaries and then later national, which you see. So when he's, what, what Joe is saying with the Peace of Westphalia, the Thirty Years' War, which rages through Germany from 1618 to 1648, is the transition not only between wars of religion, because the Thirty Years' War starts as a Catholic versus Protestant duel and ends with state-on-state conflict in a modern sense, but also... Where, be- where's, where's the buzzer of irrelevant oh this is important it is not it is so protestants and catholics used to fight they did it and they, no but they don't anymore that's the point the 30 years war kind of solves that play jfk was called uh-huh. and this, and, yeah but there's no state on state action no sorry stale state fair and the 30 years war begins in 1618 with primarily mercenaries launch connected hired soldiers of fortune making up the armies and then later by the end with the dominance of the swedes with a national army composed mostly of swedes and also several Finns and norwegians uh of professional soldiers you have now what you would recognize so, the modern army so there's basically what we see happening is countries get bigger than incentives or over bigger than the Greek city says so I'm gonna get there you got yeah I'm really big with Rome or whatever fine sure centralized and then it breaks up again later and then Charlemagne and blah 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 and then so now we see we see we see states getting bigger than they had in Sun Tzu's time to a point where they become what we would recognize as as almost nation states and in that with this whole knights to landschnecks to mercenaries and stuff, you see the professionalization of armies at that state level, which is now described as the state has a monopoly of violence in this system. Mm. The states get to have armies. You can't have an army if you're not a state. That makes you a mercenary, and everybody hates you until they need you for their war effort. But what happens in European warfare is that the use of mercenaries, though, which is very, very prevalent in the late Middle Ages into the early modern period, completely falls off a cliff by the 1750s. You have professional standing armies composed of recruits and volunteers and the, well, not exactly the highest quality of recruits and volunteers, but you have this. Yeah, well, no, prisoners, of course, are very popular. Serve or go to jail has been a saying for a long time before uh, the 1970s. What happens that completely revolutionizes modern war? So we're back to relevance because we, again, at the end of the day, we anybody besides there is listening. I was going to bring up Napoleon. They just we bought a movie about him. Don't disagree. Yes, that seems perfectly relevant because now you can discuss Napoleon and you can talk about the actual things that happen because I assume they get a lot of things from him. Or excuse me, take artistic license with a lot. Anyway, um, no, I just wanted to, to reiterate that the biggest thing we see leading into the Renaissance from whatever this period is that's not going to get Pete mad at me for calling it a wrong name you see a monopoly of violence. The states become the ones licensed to conduct war. If you're conducting war below the state level, 
you are a rebel, you are an insurgent, you are pick pick any word. It, it's just it's not okay. And everybody in this new licensed to violent community will try to smack you. Mm-hmm. Then we have the Renaissance. Right after the Renaissance, we have the scientific enlightenment. Right, right after about two hundred and fifty years. You have to get this really modern period for one one America later. Mm-hmm. Okay. You have Science Revolution Enlightenment. But early seventeen seventeen hundred. You have the you have the scientific revolution leading into the industrial revolution. revolution. And all of these things happening. Age of the we're about at the we're about right at right about at the dawning of America. America was founded in sixteen oh seven. James Town. The United States. Oh, no, all right. All night. All right. So night okay, seventy seventy six. The birth of the American Republic. The grand experiment. And the point of our podcast at minute 42 of recording. The American Republic is is very much, when it comes into being, it views war, I think, a lot like the English do, because it's an English colony, and the majority of the founders are English. And America is sheltered from the Napoleonic Revolution that then, that then turns warfare on its head, right, and which makes the famous theorists Karl von Clausewitz and Antoine Germany, uh, you know, a Prussian and Swiss extraction... So America is watching the Napoleon literally conquer all of Europe and most of North Africa from a safe distance. We get involved a little bit, but not too much. And so the two things that America has always prized since 1776, or arguably earlier, capitalism and freedom. Liberty and the right to buy or spend money however they see fit. And so you see these two innate American tendencies that start at this point. America at this point is still turning to Europe. And even Russia is turning to Europe as well. Everybody's taking cultural and philosophical cues at this part of the world. And if they and if they Europe. are and if they aren't, if they're not paying attention like the Chinese, they will soon have to pay attention because Europeans are gonna pay In China's defense, they were dealing with some other stuff at the time and weren't actually particularly aware that Europe was now defending itself as the cultural but, So the American Revolution is a direct cause of the French Revolution, which rips apart the Kingdom of France and installs, the fancy term is levy en masse, but the, the, the idea of a nation at arms. The idea of a nation at arms, instead of just a small standing army, the French field armies of hundreds of thousands of men, all conscripted from the countryside. And why are they able to do that? Because they're a republic. Their new governmental form is now whatever, of the people, by the people, for the people, to borrow a later phrase. So Napoleon, though, as emperor, his his, his singular genius is that he's able to harness the French nation at arms at a singular point. So, so he takes the diffused energy of the French Revolutionary Republic and he focuses it like a lightning rod uh, toward his own objects of policy and then promptly conquers all of Europe except for the United Kingdom. It's very successful. Now, it makes a lot of enemies, but no single man in Europe since perhaps Augustus Caesar or maybe one of the later Roman emperors had so much single power concentrated in one person. And he was able to do that through his revolution of the military. That's why, after Napoleon is defeated for the second time and packed off safely to die in exile in St. Helena in the southern Atlantic Ocean, a Prussian named Karl von Clausewitz, who's a 10-year veteran of the wars against Napoleon, decides to sit down and write. I think he's on the Gneisenau's uh, staff at Waterloo. I mean, Clausewitz, is, he's actually there. Yeah, he was also really good at not finishing anything. See, Died of cholera. Finish it. War effort, and he certainly didn't finish his very, very famous textbook. Mm-hmm. Well, calling it a test, but uh, 
this is where this is where I think it's more accurate to say we start seeing a philosophy of what is war yeah. and what is warfare. Because Clausewitz is arguably one of the very first people to actually define it. Mm. Famously as? And so the, we need to break this down a little bit. Famously, he does say that war is only a continuation of state policy by other means. Politics by other means is really what he's associated with. But he he doesn't write very much of this book, but in the parts that he does flesh out, he does explain a lot of philosophy of like what is one of the important things to talk about because it's not talked about. It's almost implied, especially by the people who are very Clausewitzian and follow Clausewitz and blah, 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 Clausewitz. Most ostensibly, by the way, most military powers. In fact, I would, can you name a single military power that would be anti-Clausewitzian yeah. today? China. China's anti-Clausewitzian? Yes, Good. because Good. China follows Sun Tzu. Good. Because again, you have you cannot ignore this cultural, the way cultures perceive things and the cultural aspects of how to define war. Because at the end of the day, the only accurate way to think about war is as this struggle between people who don't see other people as the same people. And it's just always been there. But to his credit, Clausewitz tries to, he tries to get a little bit more specific with it. And he's like, well, you have this one kind of war, which like in the abstract, this ideal type war, and I'm starting to realize I'm making quotation marks with my fingers. So this ideal type war is that it is, it's literally what Sun Tzu calls war. It's this, it's this middle folds bars struggle, existential struggle for survival. And he says, that's not real war. That's not a real thing. Well, let's see. Well, it's not. That's not. A you're right. Shoot. You're right. That's that's not fair. It's like I'm. I'm. I'm making it sound dismissive. Yeah, yeah. He wasn't dismissive. He's but not. he was like he theoretically war could look like this because at this point Europe and by extension anybody who turns to Europe to to perceive cultural keys right war has evolved like in in using that in every pretentious sense of the word at mm -hmm. this point war has evolved to become this like genteel almost this army versus army gentleman's duel as you said earlier like it's very it's very constrained it's not what we would call total anymore mm -hmm. you're not targeting cities you're not salting fields you're not burning you're not raping you're not pillaging you are dueling somebody else's army with your own army until one of you wins and gets to make concessions of the other person and that's the war Clausewitz is writing about i'm not saying he's wrong but yeah so he's really Anything Clausewitz wrote was really geared and oriented towards this gentlemanly, genteel, very constrained, limited type of warfare. Which was 20 years of his life. Yeah, mm -hmm. because because that was war mm -hmm. in Europe. Yep. But again, what if you go to war with somebody who's not from... Like this, we talked about laws of war earlier. Christianity is largely concentrated in specific states, right? predominantly ones that trace lineage to Euro. Fair? Not fair? Mm. You see Buddhism and Islam as pre prevailing religions elsewhere. And these folks... And they still they have laws of war, but they are they would be different. They might have laws of war. I, don't, I honestly don't even know. I do know that when America first started confronting Chinese soldiers, they were wearing North Korean uniforms, mm -hmm. and we were fighting the Korean War in an attempt to curtail the spread of communism. That is when Westerners start seeing Sun Tzu's art of war. Oh, even earlier. I would say that when we think the they, Japanese... They, they, were aware, they were 
that you know that is a yeah, yeah, yeah. one point because Lionel Giles does write his translation. I want to say nineteen fourteen, but I am far too lazy to look yeah, it up. Yeah. But if I'm wrong, yeah, I'm correct. This is in the show notes. Mm-hmm. So you see, you see the first translation into a white people language. I hope I'm not really offensive. Um, it was in Lionel Giles originally yeah. translated it into French, right. and then it was translated from French into English. So the Sun Tzu that I first read was literally the third time it's been trans or second time it's been translated, which just introduces even more error. But it was the first time it was like 1914, so just before World War One. But you don't see sales pick up until after World War Two, And then specifically, it's the Korean War, which is really when you start seeing it, specifically the American military, Illuminati, intellectuals, whatever you want to call them, policy wonks starting to read it. Because they're like, this is not, these battles are not happening in a way that we would deem acceptable or a way that we were necessarily prepared and planned for. And it doubles down to Vietnam. This is when you see us being associated with war. And then is there some sort of attempt to reconcile what Sun Tzu says with Clausewitz says? Maybe, maybe not. But this is where bringing it back full circle only 10 minutes after our recording timeline target I blame the communists for why America is constantly intervening around the world. So first, you see the world wars, which really, World War One, and we're going to definitely want to spend some time on this because it is fascinating. Um, but if you want to learn more before, or even in addition to us, Dan Carlin's Hardcore History does a phenomenal synopsis of um, but it's really World War One and people reading Clausewitz and coming to their own conclusions, because again, Clausewitz never finished his book, um, really leads to why World War One ends up being atrociously horrific in the way it does. Everybody's trying to outmaneuver each other and ends up building these trench lines that go from coast to coast or coast to mountain in an attempt to get around each other's flanks. So when that doesn't work, you just Fly them with artillery. It becomes a living embodiment of the sunk cost fallacy. Yeah, absolutely. That was sort of fed by, driven by the Clausewitzian theory. Um, so you see World War One, World War Two, pushing the limits of these, of this idea of this limited war. And then after that, the nuke. You, the nuke. I don't want to touch atomic <laughs> the nuke. right now. Yeah. And leaving nukes and atomic weapons out of this equation, I already forgot where I was going to go. Well, that's the commies' fault. Yes. Right? So again, so now going back to America and why America sees the war, war in the way it does. So America fights this American Revolution, right, where they followed really a French style of war because Clausewitz hadn't taken hold across all of Europe. Clausewitz really doesn't start taking hold of all of Europe until Franco-Prussian War, Franco-Prussian war when one of Clausewitz's contemporaries that outlives him, who doesn't write much himself, but like they clearly had a relationship, von Moltke the Elder. Just, just, just he, he straight up annexes parts of France. He's just so good at this game. And so... France is losing to Germany or Prussia. Well, it's Bismarck, so it is Germany. And so Americans, straight after, right after we fight this atrocious war that leaves everybody unsatisfied, the American Revolution, um, they're looking at this French textbook, looking at France lose impressively. You're talking about the American Civil War, by the way. The American Civil War. What did I say? You said American Revolution. I apologize. It's 
So they fight this war that nobody's really satisfied with the outcome with, especially because of the death toll. And then we look over there and France is actively losing impressively to Germany. You're like, oh, and decisively. We need to read what the Germans are reading. And this is when you start seeing Clausewitz adapted into the American perception of, of war. So now we have Clausewitzian war tendencies married with this need to convert everybody. Because free trade is only good if other people are freely trading with you, right? Mm -hmm. And so people only trade freely if they have freedom. So liberty and capitalism have always gone hand in hand, at least in the American perspective. And in an English perspective. And if there's two things that communism does not like, at least the way the popularized form of communism from the Soviet Union, because I am not a, I am not a Marxian expert, um, freedom and capitalism are generally discouraged somewhat strongly under the Soviet regime. So America is in this essential, what it sees it as an existential race. Can we make more people more free and more capitalist than the Soviets can make more communist? And so America's already like, so before America was really good at fighting wars in North America. And then Towards the end of that, America starts experimenting in the Spanish-American War, which we'll talk about later, because it leads to how America ends up having this military network across the world. America starts experimenting a little bit with getting getting out of its perimeter a little bit. Beat up on the And Spanish. then World War One happens, and then we're like, okay, well, we don't want to get involved because there's this whole political cost with losing American lives, and that's that's not even an American war over there. And then Germany gets desperate. And they're just like, hey, if you see a ship, it's not a German ship. It needs to not be shipping anymore. Suffice to say, though, so after all of that, your two world wars, and did the, I just peek myself? No, yes, but it's, it's so after that, you have two world wars, which America wins. gets expeditionarily involved, correct? Sending people all up in every. At this point, there's clearly there is a habit developing. Yes. And, at bare bones level, you can say America is currently from World War, from Spanish American, really World War One, World War Two, developing this habit of expeditionarily sending forces somewhere to protect American interests in the idealistic sense, yes. existential threat, and getting but very Europa getting would very shut off trade to Europe. Yes, Hell. and America's getting. America is getting very good at it, right? Because it's proficiency. Now we have two generations plus yeah, once, of international once activity. Once you practice something, it becomes more economical. Right. You, you get this whole production and shipping system going. You have your own theorists developing these own things, and you're yeah, you're just you're just crushing it. And on top of that, America's also the other thing we don't really publicize much is like, especially World War One and World War Two, but even the Spanish American War, we are very good at waiting till everybody else is kind of over it to get into it. Well, that's because it takes two to three years for our industrial base. I mean, yes, like we take most of our casualties learning how to war again yeah. um, from World War One to World War Two. But still, like we, we have yet to have committed most of our resources, time, energy, motivation. So that probably helps out a lot. So at the end of the day, you have this essentially new Soviet Union. So here we are, though. Cold War ended in 91, 1991. I'm just getting to the start of the Cold yeah, War. Yeah, but we need to do accelerate. Pete, I feel like I am owed 20 minutes of diatribe. 
<laughs> from the excessive history lessons you gave us and my mother. Lay it on me. Love you, Mom. Um, no, I just so by the start of the Cold War, all, aka the end of World War One, you have China, which has just gone through a revolution, minding its other than Japan literally raping and pillaging its way down the coast, minding its own business, having rebuilt this new communist China. You have the Soviet Union, which has gone through its own working on itself, as it were, and and is now it has this new perception of itself as stronger, at least in a foreign policy aspect. And you have America, which is coming off what it feels like is the biggest W of its career. It still feels like it. And it is maintaining a large standing military at this point. And so you have the immediate butting of heads that leads to the Cold War. And because of the Cold War, it becomes a battle of ideas, right? Communism versus freedom and money. And in this, you have all of these other wars that we like to talk about and people like to argue about whether we won or lost. Again, the point is we sent people to Korea to stop communism. We sent people to Nam to stop communism. We sent people to Kuwait to save them from the Iraqis. Yeah, which, again, admittedly not communism, but it was... But we were protecting freedom. Yeah. So Grenada, we had a bunch of whole smaller ones that... Police actions, not wars. Police we call police actions yes. where we basically deployed troops and shot other people yep. who were acting as troops. Acts of war, but we call them something else. Just, yeah, again, and going back to my yep. main point with Sun Tzu, he's like, well, dude, dude, just call a spade a spade. War is war. But yeah, so we have we have all of these practicings of deploying, reacting to people who are threatening either American citizens or American ideology existentially mm -hmm. and threatening to spread their anti-American, as it were, sentiments worldwide. So Korea, Vietnam are the biggest ones, but there's these other policing actions like Peach has mentioned. But you, you've seen this habit develop to this point. So at this point, by the time good old Saddam Hussein starts being like, hey, Kuwait, I have most of the oil. You've got some good oil and some harbors. Why don't we just forcibly marry and you just become a part of Iraq? Don't forget also he he owed Kuwait a crap ton of money from the Iran-Iraq war. So, but yeah, yeah. So, but, so leaving, yeah. take and, communism and, off the table, mm -hmm. you now have this somebody's freedom, somebody's liberty, right. somebody's a right to... Give us money in exchange for goods as being threatened. Mm -hmm. We better get in there. And and we got in there. Yep. With the coalition of partners, because America's not the only one who thinks in these post-Cold War terms or 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 right near the end of Cold War terms, um, bringing us to the end of the Cold War. And hopefully in the last few minutes, you, you mentioned... But then that leads to the new, right, the new war, the new war on terror, which begins on the 11th, 2001, right? So... You and then it's a okay, it's segue to America's most recent. I mean, I feel like a lot, of, even what I mean, it's been a couple of years, and a couple more countries have started acting up. Yeah. Well, I mean, well, but yeah, technically, Ukraine, because we haven't. Well, because technically, the war on terror is over, right? Because the global war on terror is, mm -hmm. was ended yeah, well, years ago. So I mean, again, yeah. I'm not even technically a war declared, and I have a radical sense, but right. but we withdrew, right, wrong, or indifferent because our heart wasn't in it anymore or what have you. But I feel like we this is literally we tried to build a democratic state. Like that it was part and parcel of this need to defend. In this case we were defending it proactively by kicking out terrorists and building an actual state. But God, culturally it didn't take and 
that, that's definitely outstanding. But what we have is though you have this delight, especially in the American industrial military sphere, of the so-called new Cold War, large-scale combat operations. Right? You have a war in Ukraine where Russia has invaded Ukraine. You have a war we, in Europe. We have put people. We, not officially, no, but we are supporting the Ukrainians via both volunteers and equipment, along with the rest of NATO and several other non-NATO alliances. States, we we are still intervening. Yes. We haven't deployed people. And We're doing everything short of putting American troops in Ukraine. We're doing everything short of that. Correct. It is a big grievance with some people. It's, it's a political issue in the current election. Of course it's a freaking grievance. But that's neither here nor there. What about Taiwan? What about South Korea? Taiwan's going to need its own separate issue. Exactly. We, we have been supporting Taiwan with all but troops on the ground for, for quite some time. They're not even a real country. Of course. We technically don't even acknowledge them as a real country. Yep. One China policy. Oh, I just know what I see in the Olympics. That That's not quite a cocktail convo. That's something you're going to want. One child policy. Yeah, later one. But regardless, no, not one child. One chi- China, China, not child. China's one child policy. Sure. Something they have since abandoned. Right. We we should. We have a whole episode on Chinese demographics. I'd love it. Sounds good. Or just check. Or just check. well, yeah. But anyway, so into it though. What we have is so. Here's the interesting thing: is here's for the first time, and I don't remember how long. Foreign policy is a major part of the ongoing election. Public discourse is what I meant, though, is that the fact that Americans seem to be wanting a, retra- a retractment from the amount of our current international obligations, right? It seems that the status quo that, is not necessarily... That, that's one way of phrasing it. I want to, I want to try and phrase it from a different perspective because, again, this is coming down to how people understand things, not like the true nature of things, right? right. I think a lot of folks, I feel like, don't really understand the connections between how America has acted since past to present, right? So since the Revolutionary War, yes, at one point we did mind our own business and only trade, and then we stopped minding it. And then I I feel like something, especially like I was born in 92, so like I don't think I get it at a fundamental level, but the Cold War took up so much of what we would consider modern or contemporary American history, or at least feeder influences. Like, culturally, it's hard to remember why we are doing these things. But we did these things for a, very, a purpose. And then we kind of got in the habit of doing these things. And so we are still doing these things. Should people continue to do these things? Should we continue to 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 be the bastion that is at least at a minimum bankrolling, if not leading the charge to defend uh, free trade and capitalism and and states rights to defend themselves it's an open question and that's that's that that's a you guys problem to solve like that that comes down to your own assessment right um but that that is that is why that tension is there now mm-hmm. now on that bombshell i think it's time to say good night do 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 if this gets more than two or three reviews or or looks out there Review us, that'd be great. I hear that's really good for helping people out. But really, Pete and I just like arguing with each other. We do this for free, and not as... Yeah, our, our callings generally either tell us to either take that outside, knock that off, or occasionally find us entertaining. So we hope Hopefully that... you found us the line. We hope we elicit some sort of emotional reaction. Anyway. This is Brass Tactics. Signing out. That would be a cool way to end it. <laughs>